Hello everybody, welcome to the UK Packers podcast. It's your host as usual, at NFL on Twitter. Of course, follow the group at UK Packers and follow me old buddy, me old pal, at Ryan Peacock NFL on Twitter as well. Follow the whole lot, sure. Now, we told you what we do is with the History Podcast is that before we hammer on and get into the Grizzly stuff, we're going to try to keep the glory for at least another week before we can maybe park it and uh, you know pretend that we have to do training camp because the next few years in Packers history is pretty grisly so in the last podcast we did the Lombardi years and we kind of tried to touch on Vince but didn't want to do too much because you know he's such a large character but Ryan today we're going to hit on Mr. Vince Lombardi and only Mr. Vince Lombardi how does that sound it sounds good to me I mean obviously with the last one looking at the 60s 60s being such a fantastic era of football there was just no way in one podcast we could do the 60s and Vince and everything else that we had to talk about in one pod. So quite honestly, from looking at Vince as well, there's a, there really is a chance we could have done a mini-series just on this one guy, but we'll try and get it all in. Oh yeah, sure. Even the, the Ice Bowl. I mean, there was a documentary made about that and it was an award-winning documentary. Um, so that's one game. So yeah, it's it does a lot of material there. So I think we're going to keep the same format, folks. So what we're going to do is we're going to go, you know, from the very beginning, how he was born, all the way through, and kind of you know gather moss as we go to what made up the the person that is Vince Lombardi. Um, so I think we'll have to start. Born New York, Brooklyn, nineteen thirteen, son of Italian immigrants, Ryan, uh, and his dad was a character, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, apparently so. Quite a tough guy as well, and probably um where I'm guessing a lot of Vince's character came from. Yeah, because it's a known fact that, well, Vince's father, for uh, those who you don't know about him, uh, he was, which I would have thought would have been weird back in the day, but he was heavily tattooed, so he had, you know, sleeves up his arm. Now, I know that's a popular thing with the, you know, these Instagram people now, they go and get sleeves out and, you know, they get their head shaved on one side, you know, they tilt their head and pose in a bikini, but not saying Vince Lombardi's dad was doing that back in the day, but he certainly had the tattoos. Uh, so he had tattoos all up his arm, you know, he'd work tattoos on, on one side of his hand and play on the other, you know, it's real old school sort of, um, you know, hard man stuff. So he was a meat cutter first, but then he went into the wholesale meat business. So he had his own business. So obviously, you know, he had to make his own errors. And he used to get Vince and his brother, Harold, to go down and they'd be lifting these big carcasses, you know. And that's kind of what they credit with Vince Lombardi getting his work ethic was, is that his dad had to work so hard. And he even said, like, oh, you know, reading up stuff about him, that although he had work and play tattooed on his hands, he didn't really get it to do a whole lot of play and it was mostly just working. Yeah, um, he definitely is a guy that was very proud of, of his, I think, very proud of his background, very proud of the fact that he worked hard, he had a family to support. And that. And again, like, like we said, you can see that through Vince as he starts to go apart from, he obviously gets this extra addition to his family, which becomes football and football then becomes Packers. So, um, but it's very much the same attitudes and the same character traits. Yeah, because, I mean, his dad would have been a proud Italian. He was Italian. Um, the same uh, with his mother. And, you know, it was that. It was exactly that thing. It was that Italian pride that really came back to bite him in the end because he witnessed so much prejudice uh, growing up with being Italian. Now, I said on the last podcast that, you know, I can relate to an extent because the Irish in America and the Irish in England and even the Irish in Ireland uh, found it that it was a hard time. So, ye lads, ye English come over, Ryan, and handed it to us for about 600 years. So then when we, we went over to England then to get jobs and we were just classed as terrorists. And then we went over to America and, you know, this is in chronological order because of the famine back in the 1800s and we were just known for fighting and causing trouble. So then people didn't want to deal with us then either. So they used to put up in the shop fronts, you know, uh, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish was the actual sign verbatim, you know. So we weren't very welcome over there. So Vince 
saw that prejudice as well and it was later on in his life that someone had turned around and said to him you know they're not going to hire a head coach you know with a name ending in a vowel as if to say you're Italian you know you're not going there um, so he was a proud Italian but always got kind of done for it uh, but again uh, Vince was kind of an odd character as well because he almost never was the family man he almost never was the sporting guy because religion Ryan from the very start was very important to him was it yeah it was and he, he actually at high school level actually went to what they call the Cathedral College of the Immaculate Conception which sounds fantastic in Brooklyn <laughs> and he actually he, he starts this six year uh, program to become a Catholic pl- uh, priest believe it or not yeah um now, obviously, there's two things. He, he's, it's, it's, in, in one of the documentaries you watched him, some guy says the problem he had with being go, or going for a priest is the fact that he loved two things, and one was girls and one was football. <laughs> um, and obviously, he couldn't play football when he was here. He continued to play football off campus throughout his studies. Um, but as you, you probably know, as he gets towards the end of this course, he decides, do you know what? Priesthood isn't for me. And off he goes and... Uh, he basically just just starts to play football, starts to look at college, um, and I think that's when he then goes on to uh, Fordham University and starts playing football rather than rather than chasing his dream as a as a priest. Yeah, but it still stays very important to him, you know, all the way through, and that's what people say about him that he tries to bring those Catholic values. Now I know there's some atheists uh, listen to the podcast and people of other religion, and they're going crazy right now because look, oh, you know, those values are from other religions. Yes, we know. We're not saying that you know we're Catholic, we're atheists, we're Christians, we're anything. Uh, it's just something that was very important to Vince, and someone had said that you know he tries to apply these kind of, you know, because later on, and again, we we'll sort of jump back and forth a little bit just to give you kind of a flavor of the man. But uh, they say that he was the first coach that they'd ever heard of, as from players' perspective to mention love in the locker room and Vince himself said that you know it was a very sort of very Christian very Catholic way of going on but he went to a Jesuit school and the Jesuits were pretty tough lads I mean you know everything was about exactitude you know I'd say there was an awful lot of violence there too I mean even back in my mum and dad's time it was all about oh I got followed down the hallway and bet with a ruler you know there's all this sort of stuff like schooling back then was was pretty tough uh, so that's what they credit with Vince being so exact and so you know such a perfectionist that it was drilled into him in Jesuit school that he had to do absolutely everything perfectly and that's something that he adopted back then and carried throughout his whole life was that he expected such a high standard of himself and of everybody else and that's what ultimately made him the top head coach and um, and stuff like that but you know that's interesting as well I mean he didn't instantly become a top head coach and that's something that we kind of get to later but as you rightly said uh, Ryan Fordham University and he gained fame there as well didn't he yeah yeah and, and in a minute you, you know like my love of nicknames and he, him and uh, his offensive line I've got a great one but he actually back at high school when he's playing whilst well sort of going to the the, the priesthood school and all the rest of it he's playing as a fullback yeah. um, by the time he gets to college he ends up playing offensive line and we spoke about in quite a few of the previous podcasts where he's changed the positions of players you know this happened to him himself you know goes from fullback to offensive line um, This and this is great I love this nigga. the guys on their offensive line at that school get called the seven blocks of granite and if you go to Fordham University now there's, um, there's apparently there's, there's a I can't think what you call it like a, a statue um, attributed to the seven blocks of granite, uh, which was just a name given to them because they were so good at what they did. And I was thinking then, I wonder if that experience he had there with that offensive line is what then makes him, when he when he becomes to the Packers, and I know this is some years later after now, but when he gets to the Packers, obviously, and even to an extent at the New York Giants, 
some of his run plays and what he started to ask the offensive line to do, which was more than just simply stand there and block. Yeah. He started to ask them to move about, go and lead block for running backs and all this sort of stuff. You know, he played on that line. He played on a very good line at college. And that, that must have influenced some of the plays that he used later in the pros. Yeah, um, and as well as that, it might sort of go to show why he had such affection for the, the guys on the line. You know, he wasn't just all about the skilled players. He had an awful lot of affection for uh, Jerry Kramer, for instance, and that might have sort of led to that. Uh, but yeah, the seven blocks of granite, so they had 20 shutouts in um, in his time there. And they said that, you know, he was pretty average as a football player, which is weird. I mean, everybody said it, and I think he even admitted himself. Um, he was number 40, he was a right guard, and he was colorblind as well, he was nearsighted, you know, so he had all of these things kind of working against him, and he wasn't that big either, he was actually the smallest guy on the line, so it was very odd when you go back and look at the footage of all the lads doing their crouchy poses, and here's little Vince Lombardi there, you know. Um, he's but, on his tiptoes. Yeah, these tiptoes, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know, going back then, this is where the prejudice starts to come in, so... The story goes that there was a guy uh, there and he looked at Vince and, of course, Vince would have had that lovely olive complexion, uh, you know, with the Mediterranean skin from being it, being from Italy. And uh, the guy said, come here, Vince, asked him to stand there and said to him, uh, oh, look at these two lads. Uh, whose skin do you think is darker? And, you know, Vince took offence to it. They had a bit of fisty cuffs and the two of them ended up in hospital for it. So Vince thought that he'd get suspended from Fordham, that his dreams were over. Um, but it turned out not to be they were only suspended for a few days and he came back uh, but again that was the start of it really Ryan wasn't it about this whole prejudice thing and he actually it shows as well that Vince was the character that now he's not perfect because we're going to witness later on in the podcast he was very very far from perfect but if he believed in something he would fight to the death for it and he'd end up in hospital for it <laughs> yeah and like you say this is probably one of his first experiences of prejudice um, and certainly the and again, we'll go into it a bit later on, but um, this is a time in America when obviously there's still a very much a, a white and black issue and it's something that he really tackles full on and head on. Um, and obviously he's passionate about this, not just from his religious background, but because obviously he's been personally affected by the same sort of prejudice as well. Yeah, and it's amazing to hear some of the players come out and it seems so alien to us now because, you know, we have equality to, you know, a certain extent, depending on who you ask and what area you're in. But certainly, you know, if, uh, from the world we see now is, is far different than what it was um, so that's yeah that was that was the first bit of prejudice but so he went to Fordham he was very successful but he always wanted to be a coach and you know he kind of wallowed around a bit after college so he, he went and tried to do law school uh, he dropped out after a year which is the first time that you kind of witness in the Vince Lombardi story about failure because up until then you know he's a kid from from Brooklyn uh, you know he goes to college with a scholarship by the way and you know he goes to the priesthood but he decides he doesn't want to do it so he leaves so the first time that you see him go to to law school and then drop out is kind of the first small failure that you see him but it kind of makes the man and then after that then I think he worked for a debt collection agency and then went on to coach high school football and he was incredibly successful there yeah, so I think he um, he plays a bit of uh, semi-pro ball in that time as well. Yeah. Um, but that that doesn't really work out either. He then accepts an assistant coaching job at St. Cecilia High School. Um, and it's not too long um, before he's offered the head coaching job. Now, what I liked about this, and this is a great story, he is a teacher as well. So he's he's coaching the football team, but he's also teaching Latin, chemistry and physics. Yeah. Uh, and this is the best bit for me. They basically go, oh, Vince, because, you know, you, you must have some spare time, even though you're doing all that. Can you also coach the basketball team? You know, this school are really getting their money's worth here. Yeah. And 
Vince has never played basketball. He's never coached basketball. So what he does, goes to the library, gets a book from some guy that's done it before, and he starts to read up on it. He starts to research the game. They go on to win the championship. Okay, so a complete rookie coach, and he's you know he's doing all this. But again, it just proves that this is a guy that if he doesn't know it, he will go and learn from somebody that does. And I think that. You know, he definitely learned from from a whole host of people throughout his career, and then brings it all together to essentially create that all I would say almost perfect coach by the end of it. I definitely agree because that's something that I found out as well. By you know, because we all know the general Vince Lombardi, he was a great man, but it's seeing how that man is built like a Lego statue. You know, that's kind of the way I looked at it. Is is that all throughout his life? You know, with the with the prejudice with him being Italian means that he stands up for people who are discriminated against. Um, you know, and if he didn't have all of these experiences like that, like going to the library, getting that book, reading up from that guy, and that book as well was completely out of date. So, and he didn't know nothing about basketball, so he looked silly for a while. But again, what he did was, is when he went on to the basketball or, or the football team as the assistant coach, the story goes that he had a football and he he brought them all in. Now these are high school kids, and it's important as well to note that this is how he acted in high school. This is how he treated the kids. And he got a rude awakening when he went to the Giants. But whoever, let's bring it back to the high school. So he had the ball and he said to the lads, see this? They said, yeah. He said, what is it? They said, it's a football. And he threw it away. He said, you're not going to see a football for two weeks. And it was two weeks of just endless calisthenics. And he just run, run them ragged, which again is something that stayed with him. Because even when he was with the Packers, uh, Jerry Kramer tells stories about how lads were, were getting sick on the pitch. Uh, they were fainting, they were passing out, they were saying they couldn't do it. They were suffering from extreme exhaustion. And he'd just break it down because... What he used to say was, and there was interviews that I've seen with people who uh, were on that high school team, and they said to him that these lads were much smaller. There was only 300 people went to the school, by the way, and they were beating people that had, you know, 10, 15 times the, the school body, uh, student body that this school did. And he said to them, these lads haven't got a patch on you, you know, they can't stand even on the same field as you. And some people are looking at him going, okay, they're twice as big as me. Uh, you know, they're the best out of about 3,000 people. We've only got 300, so, you know, you're dealing with a bit of a rabble here. But, you know, this this crowd went on, uh, like he had eight years there. They won six straight titles in St. Cecilia's and they had 32 unbeaten games. So, I mean, he made these players who would have been average believe in themselves. And that's something that even, you know, the Packers and the Redskins and the Giants and all of these professional teams said. Vince had a way to get the absolute best out of you when you didn't even think that you had it yourself. Yeah, and you see stories with um, players like Jerry Kramer and Bill Curry where in some of the interviews they're in, they they, they feel quite low. And uh, Vince has obviously given them a good ear bashing for, for a mistake in training. They feel very low, feel like they're, they're maybe not able to achieve their dreams or the team's dreams. But then Vince just had that way of coming, putting a hand on the shoulder, reassuring and making you feel, you know, that you could achieve anything again. And, um, you know, there's, that's not one or two players in that. There's, there's several players, say, in a moment like that where he really lifted them and made them believe that they were very special or almost invincible. Yeah, which is something that even his son says about Vince Lombardi. He says that his dad just had a way to, you know, really get into people's heads and that they'd appreciate him. You know, and he used to cuss you out and he used to kill you. But at the end of the day, it was all just out of love. Um, and speaking of his son, so it was 1940 that Vince married uh, his wife Marie, and this is where you know this is where you start to see kind of the tragedy uh, to Vince's life, because Vince was obsessed with football, and that seems kind of cute. But the thing about it is, is that it, it kind of it had a very detrimental effect on everybody in his life because football came first, his wife came second, and I don't know where his son and daughter came. Now he loved them, and I'm, you know I, that'd be very controversial, but. 
his son didn't get along with him and even when Vince died uh, I was watching an interview with his son and again this is getting way ahead of the game but his son says oh yeah we I saw on the news that dad was in hospital at six o'clock in the day and then uh, the day after that or maybe two days after that mam called me and told me it's serious can you come to the hospital you know because me and my dad didn't get along too well you know and uh, like to see that your father's sick on the news at 6 p.m when all the half the Packers players have already been in to see him and then you arrived down because you didn't really get along with him I mean it had such a bad effect on his family because he wasn't there like if you listen to his son and his daughter they talk about the fact that oh yeah you couldn't talk to dad from Monday to Wednesday he'd start to calm down a little bit Thursday he might come home Friday he might be happy or sad it depends on what mood he comes in at Saturday he's gearing up for the game again so you can't talk to him and Sunday then he's gone so you know and his his wife had a hard time uh, she became an alcoholic after after it all he's you know his son kind of didn't get along with him um so again ryan i mean he he did pay a large price didn't he for that perfection uh that he was pursuing yeah um on their on, on the honeymoon with vince and his wife uh obviously there's a story that halfway through the honeymoon they're all enjoying themselves and vince suddenly turns around to her and says we gotta get home because training camp starts i mean <laughs> could you imagine that could you imagine being on a honeymoon with your wife yeah and just going oh we gotta go home now because the high school team are kicking off training camp that's the thing like high school i mean it's not as if he's in the nfl it's high school at the time yeah and uh i know there's, there's i can't remember who who's on the documentary but i was watching one and it says that basically in the end vince lombardi's wife decides do you know what? i'm just gonna have to learn this game as well i'm gonna have to get into it i'm gonna have to learn to love it because whether i whether i like it or not this is going to be a huge part of mine and our lives as a family um and i think yeah, probably not by choice, but she she almost has to, her life has to go in a certain direction yeah. because football is number one. Yeah, and she didn't miss a game. So even up into the pro game, you know, she was there, sitting there in the stands, dutifully watching the games. Um, and again, I love the story between the two of them because Vince was such a hard man. I mean, he'd ball you out, he'd cuss you out, he'd always have an answer for everything. He was, you know, he was the biggest perfectionist of all time. He was the biggest control freak of all time. And apparently the biggest phrase that he used to say when they used to go to these soirees, because uh, Vince used to sort of try to calm down after the game. They'd have people around the house and they'd, they'd swan around and have some have some drinks and Vince would be trying to tell jokes, but apparently he wasn't a big joke teller either. And the biggest sentence that used to come out of his mouth all the time was, shut up, Marie. Because he used to keep telling her to shut up all the time because she keep telling him what to do. Like, Vince, don't be doing this, don't be doing that. And he'd say, shut up, Marie. But uh, he used to do everything that she wanted him to do. So he'd mouth off at her, but then he'd end up doing what she wanted him to do. And she still had the upper hand over him after, you know, from the very start for all these years. And the sort of the cute story about it too is, is that that was his only ever girlfriend and he married his high school sweetheart so they were together from the very very start till the very very end and she was the only one who was able to get through to him and again i mean so that was high school and the honeymoon but he he's not happy with that so what he wants to do is is he wants to go on and be taken more seriously and he he's ultimately wants to become a head coach somewhere Um, and the only way that he can do that then is that he was thinking about going back to college maybe going back becoming an assistant coach um at fordham and that's exactly what he did he went back to fordham yeah so he picks up at fordham he, he, he initially works with the freshman teams in football and basketball um and then he goes on to become the assistant coach for the for the for the varsity football team um it's at that point again he still wants more fordham university is okay it's a university team it's a college team which is what he wants but it's not vince basically sees that he's more than that i think and so not long later yeah, I think it's after the 48 football season 
Lombardi accepts an assistance job at the military academy at West Point. Yeah. Now, at the time, this is this is the dominant team in football, um, and and basically he goes there because he's starting to get that feeling that he's not going to get a head coach job, and he looks at this team who's coached by uh, Coach Blake, and basically he decides, you know what, every assistant on that team ends up going from there because they're the dominant team, that's a dominant coach, and they've learned that coach's way of doing it, and everybody else wants to tap into that. All those assistant coaches at that club, uh, at that uh, university, end up going on to other teams and being head coaches. So that's basically his his style there. It's He wants the head coach move, but he sees this as the stepping stone to do it. Red Blake again, he was famous, like you said. I mean, everybody who worked on the Red Blake became a head coach, and that's what Lombardi was looking for. And again, this is another sort of piece to the Vince Lombardi puzzle. He said he credits Red Blake with, you know, how he organizes his practices and how he studies his film. And there's always there's that story that they used to sit up in sort of the tour, the kind of terror, and sit up there till all hours of the morning studying tape. And the stories of, you know, Vince coming home after working crazy hours because he was so driven to try to get the head coaching job that he was just so distracted mentally with the whole thing. He was there in, in, in body and person, but he actually wasn't really there. There was a story, his, I think his daughter told it, that he pulls into the wrong house. So he pulls his car into the wrong driveway, opens the door of the wrong house, walks in, and then only realises this is not where I live, and then had to go home because uh, he was so driven by wanting that head coaching job. But this is where we see the prejudice come in. And uh, he did all these interviews to get the head coaching position. And they turned around and said, look, they're not going to hire a head coach whose name ends with a vowel. So that's where, again, he sees this Italian prejudice. And he's like, well, you know, what What am I supposed to do? Uh, but he actually does land then sort of a more serious role uh, because the New York Giants wanted a head coach. And Wellington Mara, who was a classmate of Vince at the time, uh, they went after Blake. But Blake said, here, look, I'm not going to go, but why don't you take Vince for the offense? Um, so that's exactly what he did. And he was in good company there, wasn't he, Ryan? Yeah, and... Uh... I tell you, whoever was whoever was bringing in the coaching teams at New York Giants at the time did a great job oh, yeah. um, because they had not only did they have Vince Lombardi offensive coordinator, um, but they've got Tom Landry, yeah. who's, who's 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 planning out the D. You know, um, for those that don't know, Tom, Tom Landry is a huge name in football, longtime uh, head coach at Dallas Cowboys. Um, okay, the Green Bay Green Bay beat them obviously in 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 a. Uh, in the championship games before Super Bowl one and two, but you know, had we not won those games, that that Super Bowl trophy could have been the Tom Landry Trophy, as we've said before. So you've got two of the biggest names of the time here in terms of coaching, and you know, okay, before they make that leap to be in those two huge names, they're both on the same team with the Giants, and obviously the Giants gone, and they're, they're quite successful through that time. Yeah, and it's very interesting. This is the period again where Vince gets very humbled because. He goes into the locker room and he has a colossal experience uh, in high school. He's coached the basketball team to do stuff that's almost impossible in high school. He's went into college now and become a very successful college coach. And he's gained all of his experience with film studies and practices from Red Blake. So, you know, he's good to go. You'd think he'd be the polished article, but he's not. Because he goes into the New York Giants and he just starts to hand it to the players. He starts telling them, oh, you can't do this, that's it, give me four laps. And they said nobody in the pro game at that time coached like Vince Lombardi tried to coach. He pushed them so hard to the point where, and he was still doing it in Green Bay to an extent, where they'd be vomiting. So, But apparently the, um, the New York Giants weren't having any of it. These were experienced players and they laughed at him. And it was, it was heartbreaking to hear stories about 
that they'd go in and they'd hide his chalk, you know, just to annoy him. So he'd come into the classroom to, you know, draw up his plays and the lads would be hiding the chalk on him. And they just didn't take him seriously one bit. And he'd try to say something to them and they'd laugh in his face and ignore him. And he just, he started to get really frustrated with it. So he went in and he sat in with two of the New York Giants, John Connolly and Frankie Gifford, and said to them, lads, you know, what can I do better? What do I need to do in order for you to actually, you know, respect me? And they sort of gave him some tips and advice, you know, like come on board as one of the guys, not one of the lads, but you know what I mean? Level with us a bit here and treat us with, you know, not respect because, well, you know, he would chew you out, but with some type of respect in a way and they might mm-hmm. fall behind you. And that's what happened. And he ended up being actually very successful, like you say. Yeah, I think up to that point, obviously, he'd previously been working with high school kids and college kids, and and now he was going to be working with adults and some of the guys on this Giants team because it was already a good team when he got there. But some some of the players on that team were already top players in the league, so to go in and chew them out as if they're a high school kid, which maybe was the style that he'd built up, um, obviously did ruffle some feathers and, pr- and probably didn't work to an extent. But again, you know, we we, we mentioned before when he, he didn't know anything about basketball, he went and learned from somebody that did. You know, this time around, he goes and speaks to players and he takes on board and he learns again. So, you know, we all say about how Lombardi was one of the greatest coaches, one of the greatest minds, and, you know, how he he changed so much in football, not just for the Packers, but so many people started to do things the way the Packers did it after his years in Green Bay. Yeah. But, you know, he was also very, very keen to learn from those before him. Um, and, And I think... The fact that he can constantly change the way in which he does stuff to suit where he is, um, you know, still holding his still holding his ideals of you know, the religion, the family, all those sort of things as well. But he can change some things about him, so he can, he can really adapt from place to place. Yeah, and that's very important because one of the quotes that's said about Vince Lombardi is, is that he treated us all the same like dogs. And then someone jumped in and said, "That's but that's that's a great quote and it's funny, but it's not true because he didn't treat us all the same. He treated everybody differently. And the story, again, I know we're jumping ahead because we want to get in how, you know, he started with Green Bay and how ballsy he was when he joined. But the story goes that, you know, he was, he came to camp in Green Bay and he was chewing everybody out and he was chewing out Bart Starr no end. Like you raised in the last podcast, this guy was a 17 round pick. So uh, Vince Lombardi was killing him and Bart Starr the quiet guy he is lovely guy he's been always been the same he said to Vince can I speak to you in your office after practice Vince said yeah that's no problem so they went in and sat there and Bart said you want me to lead this team but you keep absolutely destroying me in front of them so how am I going to have respect and standing with the team if you keep killing me can you not do that please and he said after that day Vince never chewed him out so roughly in practice again so where he and I've been reading Jerry Kramer's book and I finished it it's instant replay is the name of it the Green Bay Diary of Jerry Kramer and he talks about Vince in detail because he sits down at the end of his day and writes what happened so it's an unfiltered version of exactly how he felt about the players and about Vince and all of this and on an awful lot of that literature that I'm reading all these diary entries he says I hate him I hate Vince Lombardi you know he's he's mean uh, he makes me feel awful he, he's always getting on us he's never happy he's always miserable you can't talk to him but at the end of the day, and then it's it's peppered with articles about how much he loves this guy. You know, so Vince treated everybody differently, didn't treat them all like dogs, adapted with the likes of Bart Starr. As we saw in one of the previous podcasts, he made the exception with Bobby Dillon. You know, so he had different ways of treating people, but certainly, Ryan, when he came to Green Bay, he didn't make any bones about the fact that he was in charge to the board, did he, when they tried to meddle in his business? No, exactly that. There's... there's um. Basically, when he comes in, he tells the team straight away, you know, uh, 
if you're going to make me the head coach, I also want to be the general manager. Now, I think basically the team agreed to this, but the team think that what they'll be able to do is they'll be able to give his opinion and, and you know, he works for them and so they'll continue running things out they run. Now, we've got to remember the 50s before he turns up. Um, the 50s weren't great and most of those board members were probably involved in that time as well. So why they think they can suddenly turn around to a, to a head coach and start telling him what to do. But um, I think there's a story about there's an inter-squad game. Yeah. And at this inter-squad game, Vince isn't on the sidelines. He's up. We've drawn from it, just watching what's going on. Um, and apparently somebody from the board, I can't remember the name now, not a particularly popular guy, uh, but he comes down to Vince with a list of things that the board says were wrong with the team and that Vince needed to fix. Now, obviously, Vince hasn't been in town long, and these are his employers. Now, if my boss came to me with a list of things that I need to change in my department, I don't know that I would have quite the uh, the balls on me to do this, but <laughs> he takes the list out of his hand, doesn't read it, screws it up into a ball, and throws it down on the floor, and he says, I'll coach the, of the Green Bay Packers. And that, that's it. And I think that's probably the last time they tried to get involved with coaching the team. And I mean, you know, you can understand, like you say, the 50s were bad. But if you go back and listen to all the other volumes of the podcast that we've had, I mean, they had the glory years with Curly Lambeau. But then he turned into a bit of a tyrant. You know, he was running the team into the ground. He was spending loads of money on, on the lodge. Um, and after that, then, they just had a plethora of, of bad coaches. And then they had their worst season ever with Scooter and McLean. Uh, before Vince came in so they wanted to just to make sure you know the board were kind of flexing their muscles and and then remember they got annoyed at some of the coaches for not playing the first round picks that they picked some years and they thought they'd have the influence and it's an excellent story like you say with Vince turning around saying I coached the team and balling it up in front of his employer it's a ballsy move but I mean it all paid off so his first season he goes seven and five so I mean it's the first winning record in over a decade for the Packers and he, t- he felt then that after he'd had that winning record to go from the worst season in Packer history even to this day and he comes in and, and makes a winning record and he did the same uh, for the Redskins so this wasn't a fluke Vince could do this he felt then that he can impress upon his players his philosophy now because he's already proved himself and shown that he can come in and take a bunch of losers at that stage with a losing mentality and turn them into winners so now they were his little puppets and he could do what he wants and I mean you know he he, he continues with it so in the second season they only lost to the Eagles by 9 yards in the championship game so they were so close within the second season but he didn't make the mistake then in 1961 and they went on and won the title against the New York Giants uh, which is Wellington Mara and do you know the story Ryan about Wellington Mara and Vince when they go out for dinner before the game yeah, doesn't he try and t- does it? Is this the one where he tries to tempt him back to the to the, the Giants, isn't it? Well, he does a bit of that, but the brilliant story about it is, and it's told by his son. The two lads, they're best mates. I mean, you know, they've been mates for forever, and there's sort of rumors about this whole thing where Wellington tries to get him to come back to the Giants. So the story goes that the two lads went out for dinner, and Vince met up with them. They're chatting away, you know, shooting the breeze the whole night. And uh, this is the night before the game now. So they're, now, bear in mind, they're friends. Vince stands up at the end of the dinner and says. I'm sorry, Wellington, we're going to beat you tomorrow, and just leaves. And then he leaves him without a ride home. So after all that friendliness, <laughs> he just leaves your man high and dry in the restaurant on his own. But I mean, they waxed the Giants. It was 37-0. Um, and a large part of the Packers' success at this stage was his philosophy and also his playbook. And we can't forget about the famous Packer sweep. Yeah, yeah. And I think as well, that you mentioned the 1959 season. He was named Coach of the Year that year. And it should be noted as well that 
the likes of Wake Forest and Notre Dame didn't even bother replying to his letters when he applied for head coaching positions. Yeah. And he came in and made that immediate impact in Green Bay. Anyway, as you said, obviously he goes on to the 61 season um, and they become, in, in the old in the old football before the Super Bowl games, become world champions in 61, in 62, and then in 65. You know, this... To have, I mean, is there any other sport where somebody's come in that quickly? And I know we saw Leicester City last year if we're looking at soccer, but has anybody ever come in and taken a team with a losing record that's that poor to then turn it round and win and then win consistently again and again and again? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know of any, any other situ, uh, situations like that. No, I certainly don't. But that, look, it's it, that's the fabric of Vince Lombardi, really. He's this guy who's trapped in prejudice because, you know, he's Italian and he doesn't have the experience or whatever. And as you said, people don't get back to him. Throughout his whole life, it's literally just Vince Lombardi believing he's better than absolutely everybody else thinks he is. So it's that story that he he does more with a team that no one thinks that they can do what they can do because they just had the worst season in Packers history. And it's always him working against the odds. Um, but I love that story as well that his attention to detail is so crazy that on that one play the Packer sweep he did yeah. an eight hour lecture before out of them there's that story in that Vince Lombardi documentary about John Madden saying he was a young uh, whippersnapper coach at the time and he went into this lesson with Vince Lombardi and he sat at the back of the class you know like a Jack the Lad as if oh, I sit at the back of the class being cool so he sat there and uh, Vince Lombardi talked for four hours on the Packer sweep and said right lads take a break and then he brought them back in and for another four hours talked about the Packers sweep. Um, J- John Madden said at the time, it's only then that I realised that I knew nothing about football. If you can talk for eight hours solid on the intricacies of this Packers sweep, um, you know, and John Madden's trying to be all cool about it. He's sort of thinking like, you know, what else could you talk about? If this is just one play, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, what, whenever I think of that Packers sweep um, and obviously what I've seen of it on video uh, since... Can you imagine being the, being the guy that has to tackle the, the halfback? But then before that, you look up and you have Fuzzy Thurston or Jerry Kramer or uh, Jim Ringo or any of the other guys running full pelt at you. Yeah. And before you can even worry about the ball carrier, you're going to have one of these big guys crash through you. And before you know it, the running back, whether it be, you know, Horton, Taylor, Grabowski, Anderson, Pitts, any of them. Yeah. How are you meant to get to them when you have the whole offensive line in front of you? It's a, it's a great play. And when you watch it, um, it's a wonder that anybody managed to stop it. Which is why they said that Vince just ran it again and again and again and again. He just used to keep doing it because he had so many variations for it. And like that story about that he spoke about it for eight hours and I'd say he was only touching the iceberg, is that whatever way the defense ran or whatever way they tried to cover it, Vince knew what they were going to do and he'd have about a billion variations and whatever they did, they were going to be wrong. So there's no, it was almost uh, indefensible. But again, they marched on, like you said, I mean, to all the way to the first Super Bowl. So they went and met Kansas in this game. And this is a game as well. It was the first game between the NFL and the AFL. And, you know, if being in the championship itself wasn't tough enough, I mean, Vince was being hounded no end, wasn't he, before the game by everybody in the NFL. It was very important that he won this game. Yeah, the NFL basically made it very clear to him that it wouldn't be tolerated if he lost. Yeah. Um, Now, as you've already mentioned, you know, Vince Lombardi, one of his his greatest qualities is his super confidence. But um, going into this one, he he was probably anything but. He was probably confident in his team, but he started to worry about now it's not just his team he's representing, he represents his league and every other team in it. So 
it's probably it's one of the few stories you hear of sort of a weakness in, in, in maybe just that momentary, you know, am I as good as I think I am? I think it's the probably it's probably the one of very few, if not the only one. Um, but yeah, obviously he goes on to win it, and and there's the first Super Bowl, Super Bowl one for the Packers. Yeah, it's weird hearing stories about him before the game when he's you know he's getting interviewed for commentators and they say he's shaking like a leaf, you know, because as you say, you you do see and go, oh my god, he was human. But an even better story that you see about Vince is, is that he was such a hard man and he pulls all these facial expressions and he gets angry at his players and balls them out but his son recalls catching him once in front of the mirror practicing those facial expressions so as much as they seemed off the cuff and him gritting his teeth and going what the hell's going on out here you know that sort of stuff and he's going you know if, if you don't play better i'm gonna cut you that was one of his sort of sound effects that he had but the fact that he's you know vince lombardi the great vince lombardi's at home in front of the mirror pulling all these grimaces and faces and shouting and all this just to see that he can get it right is an amazing sort of insight into you know the man that vince was because everybody thought he was invincible there's even a story that the players like vince would never miss mass ever he used to always go but one time i think there was an altar boy couldn't go and and do the service so vince said that he'd do it and he said it was a hilarious story that the the packer players came into church to sit down and who did they see coming out of the pew or the what you know whatever it's called is vince coming out with the altar boy bells and they're like oh my like he does everything as ran this man can't do (laughs) and he's sitting there and they said that the priest was even looking at vince lombardi being altar boy with a look on his face as if to say sorry vince am i doing this right because he was even sort of (laughs) looking at him going what does this man you know not be able to do um but again you know that's just the type of guy vince was is that he he had that expectation of people and like that sort of pre-story looking at him you know it's all in jest but at the same time it, it goes to show what type of militant he was because didn't he have this grading system ryan where it's kind of like pro football focus actually where if you earned a zero you did what you were supposed to do on the play but there was even some you know big plays uh in the history of the packers that they they succeeded and he gave them a negative play uh like that play that we were talking about before we come on the call you know what the giants were um they chased down don meredith and they forced the interception to be thrown um in the end zone to win the championship and uh vince gave who who was the person on the play I can't remember now, but they, he gave him a negative two. <laughs> sort of thing. And he won the game for the Packers against the Cowboys. He forced the interception to be thrown into the end zone. The Packers win the game. But the guy who forced that interception still didn't grade positively. He got a minus two on the play because he didn't do it right. I just think that's quality. Though. Can you imagine having a grading system where it's not even possible to get a positive number? Yeah. <laughs> like the, be- the, the, the best you can get is zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and look that's that's just he was a, he was a he was a hard man but at the end of it all he was fair because he just wanted to get out of his players what he expected of them and their potential and as he treated them all like people at the end of the day whenever they had an issue uh, and went to him they were able to sit across him and he'd level with them and this is where we really see all the stories come out uh particularly around black players so dave robinson was the first black linebacker in packers history and one of Dave's good friends was a guy called Lionel Aldridge. And he was a black player who wanted to marry a white girl. And again, that was seen as a bad thing to do in the NFL at the time, right? And Vince, again, handled it like a champ. Yeah, so basically, I think Vince takes the, the attitude where, you know, as long as, he's, as long as people love each other and as long as, you know, they, they're true to each other and all the rest of it, then, then what problem is it of any of us? And I think it went further than that. He didn't only... Not that I guess they needed it, but not only did he sort of say, "Look, we should all give us give this our blessing," but 
he, he basically made it very clear to anybody else on that team that if there was any prejudice of, of any nature towards any person, whether it be uh, color, whether it be religion, whether it be, I don't know, uh, I think even homosexuality was mentioned. You know, if, if it's any of those issues, any sort of prejudice at all, then that player would not be playing on the Green Bay Packers. And it was something he was very strong about. Um, and, and you know, I think everybody knew that as well. Yeah, like for such a tough guy, um, for such a guy who seems so hard-nosed and all of that type of stuff, he was a big softy, really. Um, so, I mean, when Lionel Aldridge came to him, he sat in front of him and said, look, I want to marry uh, this girl and I love her. And he said, well, do what you want to do. He said, I, I don't care. You can do what you want to do. Other players are getting blackballed around the NFL for, you know, interracial couples. Uh, but he said, I don't care, as long as you're a good player and you play well on the field and it doesn't upset you, he said, it doesn't bother me one bit. So apparently he came out delighted and told his wife at the time, you know, uh, we can get married. Yeah, and I think um, Lombardi's apparently quoted as saying that he, he he didn't view his players as neither black or white, but only as pack or green. <laughs> that's brilliant. You know? And uh, I think that that's it. That's exactly as you say there. You know, if you're a good football player and, and, and you play for the Green Bay Packers, that's all I care about. And it doesn't matter if you're black white green purple or blue you know it's as long as you've got that green jersey on and that's it i mean i just think it's so brilliant and poetic that he was nearsighted to begin with but also that he was colorblind but not only in the medicinal sense he was colorblind and he didn't really care whether you're a black or white he'd give you a shot and there's that story that he was going around green bay and saying that all of my players stay in the same hotel and going to different towns and saying all my players stay in the same hotel because there was segregation back then and he said, you know, if you don't like it, well, then I'm going to make sure that none of my white players even go to your establishment when they're off. So, I mean, it goes to show that his whole Italian heritage thing, the fact that he had to have fisticuffs because someone, you know, sort of jumped on him because of the color of his skin. People were saying he wasn't going to get the head coaching job because he'd a vowel at the end of his name. All of this stuff came in. And again, as we said, his brother was gay. So when it came to even homosexuality, as you said, I mean, he wasn't prejudiced against that. Now, again, that would have been well ahead of its time because we've even seen in Ireland and England I mean, to be gay was a, a crime up until the 80s. So, I mean, you know, this stuff, he was back in the 60s. So he was well ahead of his time. Um, but again, when it when it took him to be tough, he was tough. There's that story that his son picked up an injury when he was playing football in college. And Vince went down to see him. And he, he opened the door to him and he was all friendly and said, How are you? Are you okay? How are you getting on? Are you seem injured? Okay. Spoke to him got word of what the injury was and said oh well, funnily enough i have the doctor here he brought in the doctor from the green bay packers told the lads go into a room there now and check him over doctor checked him over and said yeah it's definitely not broken it's just a sprain and after that vince's mood changed he bawled his son out of it and said you go out there and you play you know you don't be soft to go out and, and play your best so the son went out and i think he ended up having one of the best games ever and got signed to a long uh, term position so that's just the type of man that Vince was that even when the player didn't think he was up for it both physically and mentally Vince could always get the best out of him yeah and of course he had players on his own team where he had to have the same attitude with I mean you mentioned in the last one uh, what was it they called Jerry Kramer was it the zipper because he had so <laughs> many stitches you know yeah. and so he, that's again that's maybe a tactic he had to use with players himself is that you know I mean I've, I've been injured at, at times and you do think oh maybe Maybe I don't want to keep doing this. It does take a good somebody else sometimes to pick you up and, and get you get you going again. And certain, something that he definitely did. So, I mean, at the end of it all, he had five NFL championships, um, but he ultimately stepped away from the game because he wasn't well, Ryan, was he? I mean, it, some of the players were even saying about him, 
you know you don't look well jerry kramer has the story that it's like a president when you first see him come to office he has the lovely long locks and twinkly eyes and he's all enthusiastic but by the end of it it's gray hair dull eyes you know the shoulders are slumped and even though vince was a winner and he went out having done the three-peat um he wasn't well and it turned out that it was more than just exhaustion and that he actually probably had something more serious brewing yeah, I think unfortunately this all started up after he went to the Washington Redskins, uh, and 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 his injury and his injury, his illness got a, a lot worse. Um, and when the team doctors basically said, "Look, it's tight, you know, we got to have you into the hospital. We we need to find out what's going on," and it turned out it was bowel cancer. And I know he had to go under quite a quite a big operation, big procedure to have uh, part of his bowel removed, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he got two feet of it taken out. And again, this, these problems sort of originated in Green Bay and people were telling him to get it seen to. And as you say, it was the Redskins. He was going down the hallway and one of the players looked at him and said, Coach, you don't look well at all. And why don't you go in and see the doctor? And Vince admitted uh, in that exchange, look, I'm, you know, I really don't feel well. And people had told him before to go and he wouldn't because he knew that he would have had to have got a colonoscopy. And I think we all know what that involves. And uh, he said, no, I'm not having that because of the nature of it and, um, and then eventually he went in to have exploratory surgery in Georgetown Hospital and, and they found out that there was a tumour there so they removed a lot of his colon um, then he had to go in again and get it looked at again it was only on the second visit then that they found out that it was terminal and the day before mm-hmm. he went in and found out it was terminal he stood in front of the Washington Redskins uh, for a preseason game and gave them their pep talk and said I'm not going to be here which is which is a raw winners, and it was the day after that he found out he was going to die. Um, and he sort of went downhill fairly fast because he found out that he was ill in July and he passed away then in September. But, I mean, when he was on his deathbed, uh, to say he was so harsh on all the players, he wasn't shy of any guests. No, I mean, there was. it says here that, you know, the family, friends, it's a clergy, um, former players not only from, from uh, Green Bay and, and current players at Washington, but right back to his college days, his high school days, all returned up. And so something I was looking at, President Nixon actually calls through to speak to Vince Lombardi and he tells him that the whole of America is behind him. Um, and he says, you know, uh, you know, Lombardi replies to the president saying that he would never give up the fight against his death, uh, give up the fight against his illness. Um, but obviously at this point he was, he was quite, it was quite far gone and, and, and he couldn't beat it. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny what you say about Richard Nixon because Richard Nixon in 1968 was going to make Vince Lombardi his, his running mate for vice president until he found out that, you know, he wasn't in the same political uh, party, which was embarrassing for him. Uh, yeah, it's a terribly tragic story. And when you hear about all the players going down, like Jerry Kramer goes down and, um, you know, he, he hold, Jerry Kramer holds Vince's arm and tells him how much he meant to him and how much he loved him. And also Frankie Gifford went down and he said, you know, what can you say to a dying man? So he ended up just talking about the weather and just shooting the breeze. But the heartbreaking part about it is, and it honestly nearly brought me to tears hearing the story, is that when Frankie's leaving, uh, he turns around to look at him again and Vince looks at him dead in the eye and says, you know, it really hurts, Frankie. And the fact that a man so strong tells him it really hurts, you know, and it, Frankie in the interview even breaks down and starts crying um, because he can't deal with seeing such a strong man so vulnerable. Um, so he passes away then uh, in September. So it was at you know twelve minutes past seven in the morning, September third, nineteen seventy, and he was only fifty-seven years of age. And again, it was raining in Green Bay on that day. And I think the the radio host at the time, you know, the big one in Green Bay, came out and said, you know, Green Bay's weeping today for Vince Lombardi who passed away. 
um and he you know he got his his funeral was in manhattan so it was the first time that he'd been properly home there was loads of rumors about him going home you know going to the new york giants the coach uh, but the only time that he actually properly went home uh, to St. Patrick's Cathedral was when he passed away and there was 4,000 mourners there and you know the son and daughter tell the stories about being in the hearse and going to the, the cemetery and as we were going along the road they just saw all these people standing by the side of the road waving flags you know it was like a presidential uh, entourage and it was just so touching to them and that's what sort of raised them up um, but a tragic end and uh, you know too soon for a man who was so strong yeah, and I think uh, that at the end, it's always, unfortunately, when somebody passes, it, seeing how many people turn up and the different types of people that turn up always then gives you a good indication of, of, of that person's life if you didn't know them. And, you know, the fact that they have so many, essentially, so many former classmates, so many former players, former coaches that worked with him, people from the church, uh, people just from the general community. You know, there was a lot of people there and there's not many that would have a bad word to say about Vince and he touched people I think in in, in in basically a very positive way yeah and I mean after all the ball and after all of you know Jerry Kramer's comments in his book saying uh, that you know this guy was so hard on him you know he really did just bring the best out of people and people loved him at the very end of the day and it's a tragedy really that his son didn't get along with him um, and was saying that you, you know it was what two days after that his dad was in the hospital and he found it on the TV that he was going to pass away I mean, it's just tragic that he didn't get along with him. And if you look at this guy, uh, you know, he's Vince Jr. And he is actually Vince Jr. He looks identical um, to his to his dad. So to see a man that looks so like him and to see that they didn't have a good relationship, because I'm sure anybody listening um, is probably thinking, you know, God, I wish I knew this guy. And that's why when we go over to Green Bay for a trip and we're going to meet Jerry Kramer to hear first-hand stories of Vince, it's getting that little bit closer to the man himself. But I mean, he left a lot behind. He, you know, he left his legacy. His name is on the trophy. But another thing that really stands out about Vince is that if you go on the internet and type in Vince Lombardi, you almost don't see a picture of him. You see most of his quotes. So, I mean, to round it off, Ryan, what would be one or two, or maybe maybe one, whatever you want, of, of Vince Lombardi's quotes that I think still stands today? Well, I think in my office at work, I, I have a, a big poster up, and it has this quote on it, and it's a quote because. I, I think I, I can relate a lot to it, and so that's why I've always, I've always displayed it wherever I've worked. And that's the difference between a successful person and others is not a lack of strength, not a lack of knowledge, but rather in a lack of will. And I think that's so true because whether it be sport that I've played, I've never been the quickest, I've never been the strongest, but I always feel if I can have the most heart, then I'll be able to achieve what anybody else can achieve. And I feel the same at work. You know, I. I when I went into that job, I knew nothing of that job role. Um, and I guess really my employers were probably taking a bit of a flyer on me. But what they got was somebody that gave it everything every single day. They got the heart, they got the will, they got they got the 110%. And I think if you can do that on a daily basis, it doesn't matter. you know. And I think if we bring it back to football, it doesn't matter if the guy opposite you is a foot taller and, uh, and 50 pounds heavier. Yeah. You know, if you've got the heart, if you've got that will to succeed, then you will. And it's as simple as that. And that's that's why I love that quote. Yeah, because what you'll find is, uh, if you go on and, and look at these quotes, is that they say they're football quotes, but they so don't just sit it with the whole football thing. I mean, you can pull them into your everyday life. One of my favorites is, is that the harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. 
and I just love that and I get that image again I relate it to my work you know when you when you come up against something and you really put your all into it and you think you can't figure out what's going on and then you go look I'm gonna just keep cracking on with it because I've put blood sweat and tears into this damn thing and I'm not gonna give up now and it's certainly you know like you said you raised the whole thing of Leicester City uh, with the Premier League I mean they put in so much hard work the, the one guy who gets applauded to the whole thing is Kante the guy in midfield who just had a work rate that was better than everybody else he was everywhere and he sort of epitomised the team and it was that quote exactly he worked hard he wasn't going to surrender they got so far they weren't going to give it up now um, so that's the man he was I mean he's seen as the best coach of all time if you go into any sort of uh, you know coaching uh, lists Vince Lombardi comes out the top yeah, of course you have Alex Ferguson up there and all the rest but Vince Lombardi probably comes out number one and as we can see for good reason but I mean Ryan we saw throughout this whole podcast that the guy as good as he was you know he was still flawed he you know he came up through life being discriminated against uh, he had to learn by sitting down some players and saying what do you want from me I mean what can I do to stop you from laughing at me and it polished him into the good coach that he was um, and I was at the expense I mean his wife became an alcoholic she suffered from depression his son ultimately didn't get on with him and had to hear on the news that his dad was dying you know two days after it was announced to the whole world from his mom um, you know he'd pull into the wrong house uh, for God's sake and ultimately you know his his health suffered then because he was so stressed out especially by trying to treat Pete that he nearly drove himself into an early grave now you might say cancer is not brought on by stress but you know he wasn't a very healthy man by all intents because they said that the stress was really getting to him and that's why after the treat Pete he gave up the coach and went into the front office because he was so run down and so defeated and burnt out um, and that has to take your toll on someone's body yeah yeah, sure does. And I think as well that he probably knew he had health issues up to that point. Um, but again, like everything in his life, football came first. And if it was football season, he'd worry about him second. Yeah, it's a sad end to, to a wonderful man. And that's kind of on sort of a downer. It, it brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, so I think next week, what we might start doing is, is getting into the likes of training camp and stuff because football is really swinging around. Um, and maybe some stuff that we can see is is a positive uh, with the Packers this year and going forward. We hope you've enjoyed the History Podcast. And the only way for myself at DDD NFL and at Ryan Peacock NFL is to end it on a Vince Lombardi quote. It's a long one, but it's a nice one. Winning is a habit. Watch your thoughts, they become your beliefs. Watch your beliefs, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. And watch your habits, they become your character. So for myself and Ryan, it's goodbye for now. Have a great day.